let's get started, Colin. Let's talk a little bit about the work that you do and uh, just a refresher on um, on wetland cycling and how that's relevant for seasteading. Yeah. So I started about 10, 12 years ago, uh, as, as we were talking just a little bit there in the beginning, uh, building floating islands, uh, or in this case, installing them. I wasn't actually building them. Um, I was working with a group called Floating Island International. Uh, but I, I saw some opportunities there uh, to build something that would be more efficient and that was easier to show efficacy. Problem with a floating island, if it's in, uh, yeah, and, and by the way, the, these floating islands, they had a lot of growth surface area for microbes. Microbes do the vast majority of the biological cycling. Well, of course, it's biological. They're microbes. But of the cycling within uh, the, the open environment, biofilm covers every square inch of the planet uh, on a, a, even a fresh surface, uh, brand new fresh. You know, say you crack a rock open, and within just a few moments, uh, there, there will be biofilm floating along in the air, just settling down on that rock and beginning the, the process of you know, long-term weathering, breaking that material down into its constituent components so that it can then be used by something else, like a plant, to grow crops that you then eat. Um, it all starts with biofilm. That is, that is the intermediary between uh, the macroscopic and the microscopic worlds uh and and those are the key components then that is what pretty much every almost every wastewater treatment facility uh in the world is is based upon just active microbiology breaking down the, the pee and the poo and the tp uh in the in, in whatever municipal supply you should have um so go, going back to it I, i'd seen these opportunities of you have this floating island and it's what is called a non-point source remediation versus point source remediation. Point source is, hey, there's a pipe, and you point at it. It's coming out at one specific point. Non-point source is, oh crap, all the nutrients or whatever already got into the rivers and the lakes, and that you have to then try to treat them after the fact, after the cat's already out of the bag, so to speak. A floating island is, it is effective. It works. It works better when you can get water flowing through it. And in this case, uh, the, the floating wetlands uh, called biohavens, and, and they, do, they do work, but they're also made out of micro, or made out of recycled plastics. It's like a big buffer pad, which unfortunately will break down over time. Uh, and then th this is, I, I got into this before anybody was talking about microplastics in the first place. Uh, so that was, and then I was like, wait a minute, hold on, this isn't, this is kind of expensive for the amount of treatment you're actually getting for this particular embodiment. In this case, a floating island that is non-point source. And I don't, you know, now what, here in, in Pennsylvania, Central PA, uh, we have a lot of mining. And I, I took a floating island uh, to a presentation I was giving, because uh, I was giving it a good shot. You know, the DP was there, and one of the guys there, Malcolm, uh, said, hey, that's cool. Put it in a box. I said, okay. And that's where the first of the wetlands in a box came from. Today, I call them self-organizing wetland bioreactors. It's that self-organization is the key part. We can talk more about that later. So that was kind of the process of going from a non-point source floating island that really was not a lot of bang for your buck. And you couldn't really tell how well it's working. Because what, are you just going to go measure the inside of the middle of the island? How are you going to get out to it? 
you know, there, there's just a whole lot of logistical and scientific issues that, that arise when you're using a plastic growth matrix for biofilm growth to do the cycling. And that, that's pretty much just nutrient cycling as well. You're talking about, you know, uh, oh, suspended solids. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll, throw, I'll throw out a couple wastewater treatment terms here. Uh, suspended solids is what it sounds like. Uh, the, everything that's floating in the water column, whether it be an ocean or a river or your fish tank. BOD, which is biological oxygen demand, that is the amount of stuff that is in the water that is carbon-based that will eventually break down to CO2 in water if provided enough oxygen. So it's measured, BOD is measured in the amount of oxygen it takes to break down all of that organic material into its two constituent components. So you, you'll get a reading of like, you know, 300 BOD or something, and like, ah, there's a fair amount of stuff floating in there, and it'll most likely be that flock, that total suspended solids. So TSS is made up of this BOD, you know, the, like uh, li living things that are floating around in the water and the like. Uh, and there's also CBOD, which is chemical and biological oxygen demand. So if you've got a whole bunch of biotic stuff that needs broken down and you got a large load of, you know, abiotic, non-carbon-based non chemicals or something else in the water that also requires oxygen, you add the two together, so you'd have 20 BOD uh, or CBOD and, you know, or 20 of the C and 40 of the B and you'd have 60 in total. Yeah, I just wanted to get that through and over with. Um, and another uh, one of the components that you want to look out for is um, what's called fecal coliforms. So those are the three biggies that I'm looking at right now with as far as seasteading goes. Suspended solids, CBOD, and the fecal coliforms. Those are the ones that you know that you really have to watch out for because that's what's going to get you sick. That's where you know you can't upcycle to something like say fertigation water, fertilizer water, um, out in the middle of your seastead if you still have a whole bunch of poo in it, right? You know, kind of it, it, it sort of makes sense. But those those are the metrics by which you can measure the different standards of water quality. So it's um it seems to me tell me correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like. Some you, you talk about nutrients and there's waste, but a lot of the time you're talking about the same actual materials. It's just, you know, you can take the waste and extract nutrients or there's a lot of nutrients in waste or there's a lot of resources in waste. It sounds like what you're talking about is there's all, you know, it could all this waste, which could be human waste. It could be chemical breakdown of your platform in the water surrounding an island or a seastead and you have processes for getting that those materials out of the water and making them useful again couldn't have said it better myself thanks for bringing that around <laughs> you're good at that carly um i kind of get on tangents but yes exactly that so i mean i guess if we kind of skip I'll, I'll skip back just real quick so wetlands in a box right i live in central pennsylvania coal mining that's a big thing around here. So I, I primarily have, for the last decade, have been dealing with iron, aluminum, and manganese. Iron and manganese are uh, micronutrients for growing things. If we're going back to nutrients, you know, that's, their, that, that's one of the biggies, plants. Like if you yourself don't get enough iron, you can become anemic. Um, if you get too much iron, that's also a bad thing. Too much manganese, also a bad thing. But they're all um, mediators and components of metabolism, of, of anything that is growing on the planet, they're going to require those elements just like you and I will to, to different ratios, different, different, different amounts. Um, so that, that's what I do in mining, uh, where we've got a mine site and it's a point source. 
you're pointing at the, you know, the water's coming out of that seep right there and you put a pipe into it. Now it's, you know, what point source and then run it through the boxes. And in a lot of cases you have to do what's called a pH adjustment. Um, so you're using limestone or caustic soda to bring the pH up high enough that the metals are no longer soluble and or they don't stay in solution and they start to uh, precipitate out as a flock. Um, and they, it'll, if it's, if it's red it, or, or, or orange, it's iron. Think of Mars. Um, I'm a big, big fan of the Mars Society, too. I'm also a member there. I've presented for them a couple times. Um, a lot of this technology is transferable from seasteads to Mars to wastewater treatment facilities. It's, it's, it's all still the same materials you're, you're dealing with. Um, if, it's, if the material coming out in your mine sites is white, it's most likely aluminum. Uh, aluminum doesn't, we don't use that biotically. So that one's really, truly a waste product. Not something you have to worry about in seasteading, though. Iron is. Uh, or the lack thereof. We can talk about that. And then manganese is generally black or a really dark brown. Um, manganese is very difficult to get out, and our current research uh, that we're, we're moving forward is we, we believe we found another metabolic pathway that uses manganese directly for, uh, for growth. It is the energy source. Um, we knew it, the iron uh, will do that as well, and will make these big terrigenous iron formations, but we, it, it's been discovered that manganese uh, also has... Uh, microbes that'll use it directly in solution. Not, not. We didn't discover it originally, but we think we've got the evidence going back about 12 years of it happening on mine sites uh, because the rates are so much higher than just standard um, uh, chemical amendments. You know, adding limestone. You know, where we can do it instead of at uh, an eight, eight and a half pH, we can do it say at six and a half. That's slightly acidic. Rainwater is uh, 6.7 uh, pH. So yeah. Uh, that's the mining side. Um, but we had originally, like I said, started in floating islands and nutrients. Uh, so we started recently, um, we, Pennsylvania and the East Coast there towards Philly um, is known for mushrooms. Uh, the Kennett Square, it's like the mushroom capital of, of the country. And, and there's, there's an area out in Monterey and uh, Cali as, as well um, that's big for producing mushrooms. Um, and they've got wastewater, they've got waste streams that are very diverse. You know, you've got oil, you've got grease, you've got soil particles, you've got horse poo, um, because these are mushrooms. They're grown in dark houses with on these big blocks, and then as they're being cleaned, all this material is getting washed down. I mean, not down, not in directly into the stream, but it goes downstream to processing. Um, and this one group that I'm working with, they we we got a grant from the American Mushroom Institute uh, that that's a thing to put in some of our boxes to do wastewater treatments here because they had already spent close to three quarters of a million dollars on a wastewater treatment plant um, that basically just failed. Um, they were they were and it was at the tail end of the process was a really high end and still there reverse osmosis machine so that they could make potable water and send that back into the rest of the system because they're already paying for the water once. And the idea being is like, okay, can we get back, you know, 10 gallons a minute? And, you know, that cuts down our, our nightly consumption from 40,000 gallons to, you know, we can recycle 20 of our own. Well, that system crashed within the first couple of days that they used it, unfortunately. Um, the, they, I'm not really sure what the engineers were selling them, uh, but they, they, they weren't able to get it functioning and it's just sat there for five years can you tell us a little bit about like so what is the philosophy 
or behind like a, a traditional wastewater treatment, the, like the one you're describing. Like, what is the what is the overall drive? And then, I, and then I'd like to understand how your, uh, I guess, um, mission or or overall philosophy on how to treat this water differs from a traditional uh, wastewater treatment. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, originally, uh, so there was a general of Napoleon uh, by the name of Veolia. He, he built some of the very first wastewater treatment systems um, in France in the world back in the 18-something or others. I, I'm sorry, I don't know. And, and Veolia is a, still an enormous business to this day, and they do all sorts of stuff. Um, the, the way it's usually done nowadays in a municipality is you've got big concrete tanks, you've got a certain retention time, and your job is to capture all the solids and oxidize everything, consume all that BOD and COD, like I mentioned earlier, um, and that is mostly in the flock or the suspended solids. So you screen all that stuff out from the water um, through, through various different kind of mechanisms. Uh, mostly it is mechanical in nature. Um, and they'll, there, there's really, there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. Um, like you can use ozone, UV uh, treatments, um, good old-fashioned basic settling, um, and a lot of times these systems then will also, at the tail end, after it's gone through all these different processes, you know, you and it, whatever chemical treatments have happened, like chlorine, for for instance, uh, might be added. Uh, chlorine's nice because it'll eventually degas anyway. It, it'll it'll uh, volatize and and come out of the water, so it's, it gets you sterilization, but it's not permanent. It's not stuck in the water um, because it would just off. And most of these systems are then followed by some kind of a wetland treatment system. And they'll call that either polishing or what's called also tertiary treatment. So you'll have primary treatment, the front end, what, you know, as soon as it comes into the plant, that's your primary treatment, whatever your mechanisms are up at the front end. Then you got your secondaries um, after you've got this, uh, that, that's where you're going to go through and, you know, kill anything that's living still in the water, um, your fecal coliforms. That's the biggie, things that are going to make people sick. Um, and fecal coliforms, by the way, that's, that's a very broad range of different kind of microbes, just generally all classified as coliform. And they'll just give you a, a number, a colony count number for how clean your water is. Potable water is obviously zero. Um, now, a lake, a swimming lake, could be like two to three hundred colony counts for fecal coliforms. So, that, you know, when you get into nature... There's always fecal coliforms out there. You go into the ocean, there's always going to be a little bit of fecal coliforms floating around there. That's why you don't just drink the water. But there are safe ways that, you know, that, that you have a certain level of, you know, re resistance. It's called your immune system. So you can tolerate a little bit of it. And they, they have different metrics on what they say is safe um, for, you know, swimming in an open lake or on a, specifically on a beach. I had to look it up here in Pennsylvania. It is 200, it's a 200 count for the, uh, the on the, the colony counts. So it, looking at the bigger picture, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do wastewater treatments. Uh, and by and large, it's, you know, the same techniques and technologies have been around for well over 100 years. Now, wetlands as are, are much more being looked at as a way of very inexpensively, because the wetlands grow themselves in a lot of ways. You know, you got all these plants that are going to grow in um, the, that, that wetland that creates the surface area, going back to the floating islands. It's all about surface area for the microbes that do the that, that attach and then do the cycling. So um, a wetland that grows naturally is great 
for uh, trading all sorts of things, uh, whether it be mine drainage uh, or poo over nitrification, um, like too much nitrogen in water. In some cases, you can do denitrification um, to volatize the nitrogen off, unless you're trying to keep the nitrogen for agriculture. So it kind of depends on what you want to use it for. But uh, as, as mentioned, like there, there are all sorts of different ways of doing that. And then we're moving the concepts of what is a really efficient wetland in a box. And it's one that actually runs pretty fast. Um, you want to think of it more like a river that moves through a wetland but normally a wetland, a natural wetland, especially if it's picking up mine drainage, will clog. All that surface area gets plugged in with all the flock going through that wetland, and then geomorphologically it'll move the river over. And then it'll, it'll cut away through a, uh, new, uh, a new section. Uh, eventually a new wetland will develop, and it's a, it's a process that, that's on a geological time scale. What you have to think, yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's you know, you you, you think about uh, the, the 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 how long it actually happens. Geomorph in the geological time scale, it's very slow, but on a on a people time scale, the actual treatment is incredibly fast. Um, the uh, because you still have active microbes if they have enough oxygen. If it is an aerobic wetland, um, and they've got whatever are their um, their energy source and their carbon source. Uh, it can go very fast. I mean, you, you think about the metabolism of me just talking to you. I'm this big organism that's sitting here um, with all these different organs uh, designed to pretty much do everything it can to get oxygen in so that it, that oxygen then bonds with the carbon in our, our bodies, in our lungs, and then is exhaled as CO2. You know, oxygen is incredibly good as an exhaust system. It's not the only one. When I say oxygen, I mean atmospheric oxygen. Um, in in uh, water, oxygen solubility is based off of temperature. So a cold uh, a cold water environment like uh, out in the ocean, uh, you know, if you're watching uh, whatever the, those crab crabbing TV shows are, those are some of the very most productive waters on the entire planet. And it's about 33 degrees Fahrenheit. So it doesn't necessarily mean that temperature is the is the mediator, the ultimate mediator. Oxygen is more soluble in colder water. Um, that's why when you're boiling water off, when you boil water, you know you're driving off uh, the uh, a lot of the the gases that are in in that water uh, because you drop the solubilities. And, and I'm sorry, I'm going really deep into the science on that one. Um, but what it, it says is that if you run a a wetland in a box faster, they actually end up working better. Um, because you get more bang for your buck on treatment, because you're running a lot more polluted water through, and it's at a, it, it's operating more efficiently because it's got all the oxygen it needs to once again satisfy that CBOD. But you got to run it faster because you're also limited by oxygen uh, oxygen solubility. Uh, at 34 degrees Fahrenheit, water's max solubility, um, if, if all other things considered, is only about 12 milligrams per liter. Um, whereas if you had like sulfate, it could be thousands of parts per million, but the sulfate is a much, it, it's, it's not as good of an oxygen delivering system. It's, it's the, the, the metabolism isn't anywhere near as efficient, um, by about a factor, what is it, two or something like that. So with the wetland in a box, are you also getting like the end materials? You have a, do you have a wider variety? Cause it seems like with municipal water waste treatments, you just want drinking water for the city. 
but with the wetland in a box, you're also extracting, are you also extracting other minerals and nutrients that, be, that can be uh, directed to other uses? You hit it on the head. Yeah. A natural wetland, like I had mentioned, it'll fill in and it'll clog and it'll move. But with a wetland in a box and a good manifold and a proper drainage system, all that material that's being captured inside that unit can then be flushed out to a dewatering bag. Um, the, the, the system out in Kennett Square uh, that, that I that started talking about just a little bit that has the reverse osmosis machine. Their system clogged because they had way too much BOD and COD coming into the system, uh, mostly in the, in the flock and soil particles and chunks of mushrooms that had been cut and just, you know, they're just pushing everything downstream. They, they, <laughs> there's some management issues that they have to take care of upstream as well. So, you know, when you look at a process or solving a problem, there's a lot of different ways to go about even figuring out how you're going to get to the bottom end of that problem. But in their system, they had too much BOD, COD, suspended solids, and they had fecal coliforms as well. So with this grant that we got from the Mushroom Institute, we were able to pay, put in four of our uh, older model boxes that still work just fine. They're, they're made of an older material that we've moved on from for something that's a lot stronger. They're fine. They do the job. And that allowed us to then quantify the removal rates of BOD suspended uh, uh, TSS and fecal coliforms in that system. And everything was going great for about, three, about a month or so. And upstream, they started using um, what's called surfactants. Um, that was breaking up the because you see they're washing all these mushrooms and everything combined everything is going straight downstream um this is why i'm saying there's a managerial end too so they're sending the they're adding really really nasty water with detergents and disinfectants into the water that's also going downstream and a whole bunch of oil and grease was getting through the system so we found that there is a limitation on the amount of oil and grease that you can run through one of these boxes. Um, and our matrix, by the way, is um, the, our surface growth area material. It's shredded up coconut husks. So it's, it's what's called lignin. And it's, it's actually really expensive here to get that stuff nowadays, but other parts of the world, you can't get rid of it. You know, that's, that's what we're using. Um, so this oil and grease is plugging up the... Uh, plugging up the, the boxes. So we were able to figure that out, get them cleaned up, and then reroute the system. I changed the process diagram of treatment to say, uh, okay, we're gonna, instead of pulling the water for the boxes from here, we're gonna pull it over here. With a, you know, let's, let's get the rest of the system working that you've already spent money on, lots of money on, to get that back up and running. And then while we're doing that, you guys fix the managerial stuff upstream so everybody who's cleaning everything doesn't send all of the water combined at once down through the boxes. Um, so that'll that'll certainly help a lot by itself. So you're 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 making sure that the, the water quality is better just even before it gets to the boxes. So can we expect on seasteads, people might have to change certain behaviors to make sure that they're they're not. I mean, and the, you know, I think ideally we would figure out how to disinfect and clean our food in a way that doesn't then pollute our water or or clog up our water purification system. We'd have to f develop new systems for for cleaning our food and water, and then and that might need some different behavior change, or maybe just like a, I don't know, like a separate drainage for uh, cleaning food or like the extra desanitation of food, and then but we can use different water system for the less extreme detergents or 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 cleaning that that might need, and then we'd have to. I mean, I think just in our daily lives. I'm just imagining like how to, how to maintain my own home. I would have to change some certain habits to make sure that I'm I'm like using the correct 
cleaning system or water system. You said it in one. Yeah, it, it with an extra 10% in capital expenditure up front, aka doing it right the first time, you just add a little bit more plumbing. Uh, and so it's like, okay, I'm going to do this water's going here, this water's going here. Uh, and, you know, as, as far as detergents and soaps goes, get something biodegradable. Um, if you're going to be out in a seastead in the middle of nowhere, I mean, are you really going to have, you know, a two-year supply of toilet paper taking up all that space, or are you going to use it a day, you know? And, and I, I know it sounds kind of silly, but that is a huge source of carbon going into the rest of your system. Maybe you want that carbon. You know, there's nutrients in toilet paper, not a lot. And it's been bleached, sure. I mean, I would probably not use bleached white toilet paper if you're going to do that. Um, but there, there are some benefits to throwing things down um, into the, 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 basically your wastewater treatment system, your wetland in a box that is in your seastead. This is something that I've been working uh, kind of loosely alongside ocean builders with uh, to develop this new system. I call it the tide pool. I've got it running over in the lab here. But, you know, these, these are those, the considerations. And to pretty much... The new box now, the smaller ones that we're building for wastewater treatment, you know, since we've already had these experiences with mining and, and building boxes for that and in wastewater treatment in systems that also have poo um, and, it, uh, you know, fecal coliforms from the horse poo and the, uh, the mushroom growing field. We've got that data then now has given us proof of concept that, oh, hey, look at that. Yeah, we actually, we, we've got solid data, double blind. Um, that has been uh, paid for by other organizations. I don't touch any of the sampling. They just take it to the lab. You know, my job is to build the systems. You guys do the sampling. But once we had that, I'm like, okay, all right. I, so I know I've got data that says that, yes, we can do this. It functions just like a, a regular wastewater treatment facility, but it's only running on the concepts, in this case, of just surface area, the microbiology, and the provision of lots and lots and lots of atmospheric oxygen. You can get pretty much everything done with just those and the right re residence time. But that residence time doesn't have to be, you know, you don't need an enormous system because this one gets more efficient the smaller and faster you run it like an engine. Uh, so it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a wetland in a box, but thinking of it also as a biological engine that has, uh, you know, a carburetor, so to speak. You've got a manifold for exhaust, um, you're, and you've got uh, the biology is doing the work, doing the conversions of pathogens or things that could hurt us to uh, make changing whatever is in that water to say, uh, if you've got urea, you know, and pee, uh, that you would then convert that urea into stabilized nitrate, which is uh, water soluble and will stay in that water. And that's, I mean, any farmer, anybody is, uh, you know, in a fish tank, you got to worry about having too much nitrates. Um, that's one of the big issues in a closed loop system like that. So, and, and the, the systems that we're working with and, and proposing for seasteading uh, are semi-closed. They wouldn't be entirely closed. Obviously, you've got, you know, in a closed system, if it were permanent, perfectly closed, there would be no input of energy or matter whatsoever. But when you're out on the ocean, you're fishing. You're, you've got the sun coming in. Maybe you're uh, picking up sargasso uh, or sargassum um, from uh, the ocean uh, as, as you're kind of like trolling along there and gathering materials. So you have an, an opportunity to gain inputs in your system that can be either saline or freshwater as well. So when, when you're thinking about your process diagrams, like, you know, how much of this does it actually have to be freshwater, sweet water? 
and how, how much of the rest of it can be saline. So if a storm comes along and, you know, you've got to dump a bunch of ballast um, or, or, you know, pump out your tanks so that you've got, or, or if you want to increase the volume of your tanks, you know, it's how, how, how deep do you want to sit in, in the, uh, in, as the waves increase? So you start looking at the practicality of like the mass of the vessel, how it's, and this is what Ocean Builders has done a beautiful job on, uh, is the balance of their system. Those guys are the airstream of, uh, of, of seasteading uh, so far. Um, any, air, by the way, airstream are really high-end um, trailers. If anybody's familiar with RVing, you see an airstream, they're the ones that look like a, um, a big, uh, well, a big shiny aluminum cylinder going down the highway. Like that's that's ocean builders. They're 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 kind of like that's their market. That's their niche as far as the aesthetics and the technology going into their systems. So uh, yeah, that that gives you a whole lot of different opportunities. Um, I would like to point out there in every one of these cases you want to do because you know I'm talking about all these potentials. You do what's called a process diagram. Um, I use a program called Draw.io. For my process diagrams, uh, and it's it's on Google. It's open source, as far as I'm aware, and it is well. I mean, no, it's definitely open source. I didn't pay anything for it. It's free to use. Uh, so anybody who's interested in drawing out whatever your farm is, whatever the plumbing in your house is, and the electrical, um, what is your seastead going to look like? If you're, uh, you know, how do you link multiple pods together uh, within your your village or your hamlet of seasteading? Uh, because there may be an opportunity to have several together, like people really like each other, and you're not going to go just drifting off into the next gyre, and you could have a centralized hub that is your infrastructure that would be able to handle multiple uh, seasteads. You know, maybe you got a couple ocean builder sea pods come along, um, maybe, uh, what was it, um, Arctide, uh, or one of their other, um, uh, yeah, there's whole, yeah, Arctide and Arcpad, their Arc House. Um, or the Atlantis uh, Sea Colony, which are all subjects, uh, active projects, you know, they, they go floating on upper sailing, upper, uh, you know, that they could then attach to these infrastructure hubs. And then that might make their, you know, if they can always do a drop-off of waste or a pickup or something, that would allow them to kind of go their own way, just like RVers actually do. Um, so instead, of, you're essentially just RVing in the ocean or in, in you know, some sea or even a large lake, uh, as opposed to uh, doing it, uh, you know, going from one national or state park to another. Actually, I like the idea of the waste management hub moving between seasteading communities. Oh, okay. So, yeah, because you'd go there, you'd process the water, maybe top them off, and since you've processed the water, it's clean, you can dump it. Now, I mean, yeah, sure. This is what we're trying to get away from, is dumping any of that material into the ocean before it's been treated. You know, large uh, uh, yachts, uh, you know, smaller boats generally don't have the, the wherewithal, the room, or the cost to be able to do that. And usually they'll just get pumped out the next time they go into dock. Or if they're out in the middle of the ocean, you know, I'm not advocating that dilution is a solution to pollution here. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that. Especially, you know, if, if it's a boat and you're traveling thousands of miles, yeah, I can kind of see that. But if you're hanging out in the same area, yeah, you don't, you really don't want to do that. Even if it's in the open ocean, uh, you still want to do some kind of treatment. But yeah, I, I, I like that idea, Carly. Thank you. Um, because, yeah, it could just go ahead and treat it, pump its tanks out, move on to the next one, and then not be releasing anything negative to the environment and giving you a chance to maybe reclaim some of those nutrients 
there. So it's kind of like, here, we'll we'll go ahead and pull on up. You guys send us all your poo. We'll process it. And and not just, obviously, not just poo, other food wastes. Um, if they are able to pull a bunch of sargasso up, fish guts, you know, kind of whatever they can get from the open environment that would be considered a waste product normally tossed overboard. But in this case, why why waste that potential uh, when you can process it properly, reduce the pathogens and the harm that you could do to the local environment, which is your it's floating right underneath your own homes at this point anyway that's you know that's literally your water source yeah i was thinking you know rather than having boats burning diesel to go between seasteads cuz i i don't think a lot of seasteads will have strong motors right they'll the the whole point of a seastead is to be more stationary than a regular boat and so they wouldn't they wouldn't have the motors to move quickly across the ocean and so then i was like well if you had a a a, rel- a stationary wastewater treatment and then a stationary seaside community, you'd have these boats going back and forth burning diesel, and that doesn't seem to be a net positive. So if all of the treatment could go on a boat that could move with a more eco-friendly fuel, you know, wouldn't have to move as quickly as all these little boats that that are currently out on the ocean, then maybe that would be a, a net positive environmental impact. I love it. Yeah, it'd essentially be a big barge with solar panels on top so that it wouldn't, uh, so that it's got a lot of surface, its own surface area. You know, now I, I don't design boats. This is just, you know, I, I would design the systems that go into them. So I'm not trying to make any kind of claims on what that should look like spe- specifically. Um, that's where I go back to ocean builders and, and you know, Arc Tide and Arc Pad, you know, those, those who have pretty, pretty solid concepts on what the physical, what, it, what it's going to look like. And then I just build into, all right, if th- that's what I'm building into. Okay, I'll plumb that out. Just like, you know, if somebody's building a house, they frame it out and I'll come in and I'll do the, uh, you know, we run the plumbing and the electrical, figure all that out after the fact. And we'll, we'll fit ourselves into whatever you need, essentially. But yeah, I agree. I, you know, I see, you know, if the, this, this stead, the seastead um, with, you know, this little hamlet, a whole bunch of them, a lot of the thoughts uh, are that, you know, you, you would be sitting in the middle of what's called an ocean gyre. That's just slowly circulating, just, just rotating on its own. And that you'd really only have to be able to move, you know, say four or five knots, or if you could put out sails or something along those lines. You don't have to go all that fast. You just have to avoid the worst seas. So as you're moving in this gyre, you know, it's like okay, if we're going to just go ahead and tack in, in toward into the, towards the center of the gyre, and that's you know 200 miles, uh, and we know there's a storm coming here, that that'll get us entirely away from the storm. And, you know, thank you NOAA and um, and NASA in this case, National. Uh, atmospheric or oceanic and atmospheric so there i mean that's the only that's the downside of doing something like that if you're going to be slow you got to really know what the weather is but then in doing so you're just kind of floating along with life you know and just once a year maybe you know like okay hey we're going to be you know within 100 miles ashore when we're at this point in this thousand mile in diameter gyre right and that's when people that's that's when you get your resupplies uh, or you just put yourself out in the middle of a standard route, shipping route that's kind of close where there's already ships already always going by, and then they can just drop off whatever whatever they should, your, your fresh supplies. But what they're not dropping off is water, and what they're not taking on from you is your waste because you've already processed it. So those are all those additional costs where you're just much more sustainable. You're, you're, you're on your own separate grid, not really re- requiring anything other than, you know, bottle of whiskey. Or you know whatever things that you can't for your, do for yourself on the on this little hamlet seastead, which would be pretty much everything. I mean, if done properly, 
Unless you want that bottle of whiskey, well, I mean, hell, you, you know, you make your own still out there. They're, they're really, once you get to the point of being able to cycle your own nutrients and doing your wastewater, your own wastewater treatments, you've already got the solar, you've already got a means of movement, you've got um, either rainwater or using reverse osmosis, which is energy intensive, but it's still pretty simple. You can you can get out there. You really pretty much can do you know like homesteading here. Uh, if you go out in the middle of Alaska and you got to do all of it for yourself, it can be done. You're gonna have to work hard, um, but at least in this case, when you're going on a homestead, you're getting out there and you've already got you you know, you know your home. You've already got all those components, so it's much easier to stay out there for very long periods of time. Um, where you know maybe just a seaplane comes along and you go back to visit your relatives, and then the seaplane brings you right back on out again. I'd seen a, this really awesome picture of this, it's a gigantic tortoise that's uh, that, several times the size of uh, uh, most um, cruise ships. And they, it was so large that it, the, like the arms of the tortoise would like kind of stick out to the, way off to the side and create very stable wave patterns that would be very easy to then land um, even when you're out in the middle of the, uh, uh, on the, middle of the, the ocean there that you have an opportunity to still get there safely on something like a seaplane that can land and because it, it's creating its own harbor, essentially. Um, and I, I'd seen some of the other pictures with Arc Tide and Arc Pad and the Atlanta Sea Colony. I was looking at some of that stuff earlier uh, where you're providing uh, a safe K, so to speak. Coral, uh, coral atolls do the exact same thing. So that where you've got the seastead on top of everything else that's been built around the, the concept of its own treatment, its own long-term sustainability, it's also creating its own safer environment internally on the inside so that people could use things like kayaks or small, small craft to get more safely around the, that your, your little settlement of, it could be just two families, it could be hundreds of people. You know, it's, it'd be, sometimes I kind of see it like Burning Man in my head where you've got all these different people go just rolling around in all these different crazy contraptions and just surviving out there. Of course, you know, it's a different kind of desert. Uh, you know, it's a water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Um, but once again, RO and rainwater. I mean, it's that once you finally do get the wastewater treatment and the recapture of the nutrients you would otherwise be losing, that allows you to grow a whole lot of other different forms of uh, kinds of food. So you're not always just stuck eating fish and seaweed. You know, you'd, you'd want some tomatoes, uh, if, you know, if you have the space to corn or something, you know. So, Colin, I think the first seasteads going to be pretty small scale, like the floating home that Ocean Builders is building. Now, is the wetland in a box? It sounded like your effort was to make water treatment more efficient. But is that so is the wetland in a box too powerful for just a single family floating home? Like would or or do you think it would work just fine? It's not a. A waste of resources to use it. You you could. I mean, if you're thinking about an RV, you'd be swapping out the Blackwater tank for a, a wetland in a box treatment. It's about that same scale. You know, if you've got a Blackwater tank, it's say you know, 50 gallons. That's good for four people for a couple days. Now and then, if you turn that into your wastewater treatment plant at the same time, you've added a little bit of complexity. You haven't added mass, and you haven't added bulk. Uh, to your seastead. That, that, those were things that were pretty much already going to be put into the specs. So you're just doing even more under the same specs for that, once again, that extra 10% cost in the initial build out to do it right the first time. way I'm looking at it, so I built the one here in the basement. I haven't actually used it yet. And yes, 
when I say use it, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, go and doing doing your business there. And that one is 60 gallons approximately. I would have made it smaller, but I just I, I couldn't get my welder into the box if it's any smaller to get a good bead on the weld because I, I double weld all this this sheet plastic that I use. I put a you know you, you put a groove down the middle of wherever you're going to do your weld, and then you weld on the inside and the outside. It makes it stronger. It ensures the seal. Uh, and it really makes one hell of a tank. I mean, those things are strong. Uh, I use, I'm using half-inch, 90% uh, recycled, high-density polyethylene black sheet. That's what I've been using um, up, to, up to this point. It's readily available. It's easy to prototype with. Um, but I, I think that one unit, I couldn't really make it easily any smaller. Probably good, like I said, for four or five people for, you know, a couple days. I mean, if you think about a porta potty um, those are good for, they, they say it's good for like 10 guys for a week. Yeah, I don't, I mean, you could, but I don't want to be using that at the end of the week. But you get the idea for volumetrically. That, that, that's kind of a volume, you think of a porta potty that they would have to be treating. Um, and in this case, they, they go and they suck them all out. But, at this, but where what you're doing is you have it filled with water, but you're actively processing everything that goes into it. Uh, and the system that I've got here at the house I figure it uses about a pint of fresh water per flush, uh, as opposed to, and it's a it's a standard Home Depot, the cheapest toilet I could get. I've got sitting on top of that, you know, sixty gallon uh, box, and it's using one point six gallons per flush. So it so what you're essentially doing in this case is you're treating the water and then using part of that treated water to refill the tank in the toilet. It's got a UV light at the top of that system so it doesn't get stinky and you're sterilizing the, that water that's in the, the top flush tank. You know, when you go to flush the toilet, it all drains down to the rest of the system. So, and, and then we do a, about a one pint per flush recharge because you've got you to gotta keep in mind that if you were to just keep reusing the water over and over and over again, yeah, sure, you're breaking down the fecal coliforms. Uh, you're breaking down some of the pharmaceuticals that are in the water if, you know, I've got high blood pressure. Um, so there are certain pharmaceuticals that, w that can be broken down by uh, treatment wetlands and some that aren't touched at all. Prions uh, is, one, is another uh, concern in a fully closed loop system. But that's why I advocate for still using some fresh water. And that fresh water could be like... Wait, wait. Are the prions the little microbes that can eat your brain? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad cow disease. Uh, Ovine encephalitis or something like that are, are uh, yes, prions. Um, the, 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 what, is, what was that? Um, the laughing sickness um, that certain Indonesian tribes, I, I think it, it was, or in, in New Guinea from being cannibals because they're eating people. Um, now I'm talking a long time ago here, uh, but that was one of the potential sicknesses, and those are prions. And that's why you don't, you don't want to keep recycling it over and over and over again. Now, in an open environment, as I understand it, the, the prions can be broken down, but they are very difficult. Otherwise, I was talking to a buddy of mine, Dr. Dan, um, and he was like, oh, yeah, Colin, that's the one you really got to watch out for. You, can't, you have to make sure you've got some fresh water coming into your system. But that fresh water could also be your shower water. You just got another holding tank, you run that through, you give it another pass. But the, the point being that, you know, for one pint in, there's still going to be a pint out. And that then, that fresh water stops the, the water from uh, in the tank from quote-unquote getting too salty. You know, you can't just keep reusing it and reusing it, or eventually you'll get to the point where you, the nutrients are so high, it's like you're, you're like constantly adding just a little bit of salt to a glass of water. Well, eventually it's going to turn into salt water. 
nutrients if you're stabilizing them and not off-gassing them, like the nitrogen. Um, potassium, phosphorus stay in water, they stay in solution. Iron and manganese, they'll stay in solution as well. Now those are all nutrients uh, for plant growth, but you don't want to let them get too high either, or else uh, eventually you start affecting what's called osmotic pressure. Um, where if, you, if, if anybody's taking those microbiology classes where you, you're looking at an onion, piece, a little piece of onion under a microscope and then you add salt water and you watch, the, uh, you watch the onion cells shrink and then you add fresh water and they'll grow back open or they'll, 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 they'll you know, grow, uh, what's, what's the term? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, they'll expand it back to what their original size was before they'd been dehydrated by the salt. So that is one of the concerns that, uh, and, and this, once again, this is, this is like the bleeding edge science for what I'm doing right now. This is this is the the hypotheses that I'm putting forward that went into my design criteria for. Well, I think if I do it this way, it's going to be safe. Now I haven't tested the system here at home, like I'd uh, like I'd mentioned. I'm, I'm actually waiting on the computer monitoring system and all the probes and everything that's going to go into this thing, so we can monitor it to see what did I miss, you know, and and give us, you know, is. It, more proof of concept to see is like okay well hey that works pretty well is that a business model and can we go ahead and start putting these things into rvs or seasteads and the like so there's still you know there's still a lot of science to be done i wouldn't just rush right out and start putting these things in everywhere you know but uh we already had the proof of concept from the mushroom uh experiments in that system that's functioning now so you know it, it kind of passes the smell test it was it was certainly worth the time to continue moving the whole process forward but uh you know, there's a lot of the kind of things that we've got to deal with. Hi, how are you? Uh, I, I, I like everything that you said. You obviously have a lot of uh, experience with uh, wastewater uh, treatment, and, and, and I greatly respect that. It's, it's definitely a field of study that, that needs more study and a, a lot of expertise. One topic that I kind of took a distaste to was in in relationship to going into a house and just kind of uh, going in and doing the plumbing. And I think that a seastead needs a lot more uh, synergy in its design so that because we're on a pretty large scale here, a lot of what you've been talking about is pretty, pretty small scale. I, I feel, I don't know what I came in late on the conversation. So maybe you have a lot of experience with larger scale water treatment production. And it definitely sounds like that. Not, not a whole lot. Are, are the, Phillips mushroom, that's 3,000 gallons, and that's running up to, a, I mean, that, those systems can run 80, 90 gallons a minute um, through, uh, but their, their best treatment's probably more at about 20 gallons a minute. Um, some of my mining sites are seven, 8,000 gallons with like 16, 16 tanks, um, and they're running anywhere. I guess my question here is, is how do you think you would deal with a water treatment problem of dealing with several million gallons of water, a and, and especially with the complication of desalination for fresh water. I mean, obviously we can't be uh, importing fresh water. We, and, and I think the idea of seasteading should be focused on entire self-sustainability because relying on imports and exports it is definitely a benefit, but can also be a deficit. Can we just um, give some talk context? So, Ishwanki, you're thinking of a community of, of what size? I mean, I, I don't really understand how many millions of gallons of water are you thinking? How many people does that serve, basically? 
I mean, if we're talking about a couple hundred acres, we could definitely be talking about, um, you know, dozens of people. If we're beyond that with with uh, just a few square miles, we could be talking about hundreds of people. And, um, you know, I deal with a wastewater uh, septic system that deals with a family of four. And I know the complications that go along with, you know, just dealing with a family of four, dealing with the waste treatment of, you know, detergents and toilet paper and all of that going into the system and how much uh, just a few people can complicate that. And I, I heard him explain that, you know, when you have uh, different imports such as sargassum and stuff like that, you know, with, uh, you know, those uh, heavy biologicals coming into a system, they could quickly call, clog a system. Um, so my question is, is, you know, as I said, how would you um, expect to deal with a uh, wastewater treatment system of hundreds of millions of gallons? I think, you know, what I'm trying to focus on here is the is 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 definitely the bigger picture. I think that uh, a lot of the research that has been done has been really extraordinary, but is a bit small in scope. And the technology is definitely out there. So I just want to, you know, ask uh, what sort of structures would be required to uh, facilitate the treatment of these large scale operations? Because like I said, we need to have a little bit of synergy in the development here. You can't just design the project and expect a plumber to come in and deal with all of the plumber, all of the problems of wastewater treatment, especially when you're not uh, taking into account what sort of products are being used, what sort of things are coming into the system. You know, that's a lot of, I guess what I'm saying is over-specialization and not diversification in fields of study where there needs to be a heavy synergy in everybody's understanding of the development of the entire entity. Does that make sense? Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, the uh, this this is why I, I like to look to permaculture uh, as the as kind of the the ethos or sort of a, a guiding set of principles towards doing you know getting having a, a sustainable the long term. Uh, seastead uh, that becomes a village town and that is is like you've mentioned capable of growing but also dealing with uh, quite as you'd mentioned a, a diversity of inputs there over Phillips mushrooms there um, they have man that is the nastiest it's all combined it's everything together um, so it, the the answers will come from you know like you had mentioned uh, there in the beginning you you're gonna have some managerial things you know is going to be uh, so that you know okay this this goes down that that system this goes to the freshwater a line or and this goes to the saline b line or something along those lines uh, I, I would see a split between um uh freshwater and salt water uh, obviously because it's a lot <laughs> you know it's it's a lot harder to get the salt out once you've already got it in so you're a lot of your process water um for um for drinking is going to come from your freshwater recycle system unless it's rainwater and you've got really big holding tanks as, as far as the volume goes uh once again also correct that the more people you get there 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 is a eventually there's a diminishing law uh, or uh, of returns 
on really, really large systems. And it, what one of the things that working with my local water authority here in Altoona uh, that I'm, I'm trying to uh, really get them onto is decentralized infrastructure. So that one system doesn't necessarily have to treat a million gallons a day, you know, uh, which is, and that's a lot of water. I mean, you think about how much water, even if every one of us out there has no water restrictions and we're each using, say, 200 gallons a day, and that's taking into consideration washing, growing plants, uh, you know, all the things that, you know, we use, because it isn't just flushing the toilet, it isn't just the water that we drink, uh, you know, from our water bottles, it's what is the sum total, as you'd mentioned, of all the water that everybody's going to be using and per day after all the industry and whatever else come up with that metric um, and then then run that out for the entire day so that you know that you've got maybe two days of total treatment uh, or of total holding capacity but your treatment and residence time is say only six hours so that you've had an opportunity to continue to run all the water through that system four times knowing that it only needs one pass that you would spec it for one pass, but knowing that your overall residence and volume for your holding tanks, uh, for say your fresh water, uh, is is properly scaled and sized. Um, so from from those say you know 200 gallons a day, and if you got 10 people, you got 2,000 gallons a day. Um, am I doing that math right? But you, you get the idea that a lot of these systems I wouldn't necessarily see it being necessarily millions of gallons a day, although it certainly could. So in the scale in my head, I see up to like maybe 100 people. Okay, so what you're what you're proposing basically is very different from our typical municipality design where you have a centralized uh, water main and water treatment plant. This would be a much smaller scale and a much more uh, symbiotic uh, relationship between uh, several seasteads where you have multiple treatment plants operating on basically the same system uh, so that they are not necessarily interdependent but cooperative and they would be able to handle a certain portion and accommodate a failure in perhaps one or two. Am I correct there? Yeah, yeah, no, and, and that's, yeah, that's that's pretty much the idea. There's, so I've got a combined sewer overflow system here in Altoona. Um, we, we've got 14 something reservoirs here. And, and cause I live up in the mountains, um, just a little bit of Altoona history. Um, that's where I, I live up in the mountains and, and it's very difficult. Uh, so I can, I can kind of relate with a uh, situation, like you said, of a uh, comparison of a desert to the, the ocean water everywhere. And none of it's drinkable. Um, we have no water anywhere. And, <laughs> And you can't grow, you can't grow anything in the rock. Um, we have a, we have a three year, a three month, uh, excuse me, we have a three month growing season. And uh, so it's, it's, you know, um, these things are very, very difficult and, and, and life gets hard. You know, you have situations to where you have extreme low temperatures and your septic system could freeze. So I definitely understand the, the complications uh, that are involved in water treatment and, and waste. I, uh, I'm very enthusiastic about gray water recycling. Uh, black water is, of course, inherently much more difficult to deal with. And it seems like you've got a handle on that, which I have great respect for. Well, I, I, I hope so. Um, yeah, the, it's the pharmaceuticals and the prions are the ones that now need the next level of research. I, uh, that, And I've done a little bit of work with Penn State. Um, we took some of our... Uh, manganese oxides that I grow in some of our mine from our mine sites and yeah I do use that term grow 
um, because it's the it is the the metabolic waste process. And put some of that in. A couple grad students put that into um, they'd gotten water from a local hospital, uh, wastewater, uh, because there's more pharmaceuticals in that because there's more people on drugs in the hospital. You know, all all kinds of drugs. And they found that um, over a 24-hour period, and they put it uh, in, into a vessel with a little stir bar, little magnetic stir bar. You know, just kind of basics. Um, and they found that uh, out of, you know, if there was 40 of them that they were testing, 20 got knocked out down to just about nothing or non-detect. Other 20 didn't get touched at all. So, and, and I am not, I'm not an organic chemist. I, you know, that's, that's totally out of my zen. I'm pretty much just an ecologist uh, that, that deals in biofilm sciences. That's, that's what I think of, you know, I'm staying in my lane, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a big challenge. Like, I hate the idea of having a seastead and you have a segregated bathroom. Like, are you on pharmaceuticals? You have to use this other bathroom. Like, I think that that kind of that kind of insults my my feelings about privacy. But uh, but I, I, so it's it's something that definitely needs to be figured out before we have just you know growing communities on a seastead. And I think the goal is to be able to invite anyone on a seastead and not have to worry about enforcing particular rules about what you know making it easy for people to work within the system and, and live in an in eco-restorative home on this question of, that you're talking about now the pharmaceuticals is the magnetic stir bar process of detecting a pharmaceutical easy enough that it could be just in every um toilet basically like before it gets sent downstream there's like a collection before it's flushed and diluted with water or whatever that it would just get tested and then maybe diverted to from there to one or another processor yes yeah the so the way they did that that study and this isn't something that we, we would be doing with uh, a seastead because we were using manganese oxides uh, i was just just saying a, you know an example of this is what I've done a little bit in the past and yeah sometimes it's going to work sometimes it won't um manganese uh and we, I guess I wanted to talk about manganese nodules here at some point but that that's a whole other conversation for another day um is a micronutrient and is in incredibly low concentrations in ocean waters um so we wouldn't necessarily be using I, I don't think I'd be using manganese oxides as part of a a treatment process uh, with within these systems um, for a seastead. Now that said, um, micro the microbiology and the biotic diversity in an ocean is something like sixty percent more diverse than in freshwater because you know everything crawled out of the oceans. There's way more. There's been a lot more time and development of uh, and diversification of microbiology in the oceans. Uh, I'd mentioned a term earlier called self-organization, where self-selection leads to self-organization. So if you, it's a field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Um, so there is a greater chance of finding microbiology in the oceans that would effectively break down those pharmaceuticals potentially. I, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. It's a hypothesis. I don't, I don't have any kind of answers. But that it, it would be testable. Um, and the systems that they use, I think. So if you had a larger settlement. And you really wanted to reuse all the water you possibly could you're getting to the point where you're going to want to do some sampling and some testing you're going to have a lab of some kind um and then things like gas chromatography uh and other uh, sampling techniques that i don't know anything about i'm once again I'm, I'm a field guy i'm not a lab guy uh person um but those 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 techniques and technologies are readily available and the nice thing about ro is it's going to pull out everything you're going to have a lot of reject water 
So you're going to be constant. You're you can pull off some water for drinking, but then you're still increasing the concentration of those uh, contaminants in another tank, potentially. So that once again, this goes back to process diagrams, um, and you know there 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 do come into play questions of uh, you know uh, your Hippocratic. Uh, rights of a doctor and you know like okay well who's who's on the HIV medication hey where did this stuff come from guys you know that's you know and now you're dealing directly with people's very personal I guess I've never even considered that before as a, you know your rights to your own information and but what is the protection of everybody else's source waters if you are you know trying if say say you're in an area that do, it doesn't out in the ocean where it just doesn't really rain a whole lot i know that's um the the uh the horse latitudes uh where you may go a long time without any rain to allow you to replenish and you're having to use your own um wastewater streams for purification just to get clean water back if you don't want to run the heck out of your ro machines um which require a lot of electricity and power to pressurize the water to push them through the membranes and those membranes over time can fail too. So, you know, you, you, you really, boy, pray for rain while you're out there. You don't want to use these technologies. They're there for redundancy. It's, it's like, kind of like if you're thinking about going to Mars, you want a whole lot of redundancy, but you don't want to use it if you don't have to. I, 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 I hope that answered your question. Um, thank you, Annie. Hey, Colin. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate your talk. I don't really have a question, just checking in and, um, just we talked earlier, and uh, just at some point, maybe we get together and chat again. I was uh, about that uh, material. Yeah. Hey, what's up, brother? How you doing, man? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I did talk to Stu. Yeah, we do have another conversation going forward uh, tomorrow. Actually, we can we can cover that then when we're not being recorded. Okay. I don't want to hijack the conversation. Just just thought I'd check in and say hey. Yeah, thanks for stopping in, man. I definitely appreciate it. Everybody, Pete's doing some really cool things um, using uh, waste plastics. You think about all the baggies out in the ocean um, that are getting flushed out uh, and, and just carried off into the currents. Well, that's also, you know, sure you can't eat it, but hey, that's carbon. That's And that plastic is going to last for a very long time. So you, uh, there there are cases where you've seen those new machines, the new boats that are going around and cleaning up the uh, the, the great ocean um, uh, trash dump uh, that gets stuck in a gyre. So being able to pull waste, not only are you cleaning up the environment, but you're giving yourself a chance to get ma more material that you can then use on the seastead for other purposes. So you're, you're basically scavenging whatever you can while you're out there. And Pete's working on technologies, he's in New York, um, uh, and techniques in order to take things like bamboo, which you can grow on your seastead, uh, or or uh, banyan or some you know uh, uh, cypress. What no? There's another. There's another. Um, yeah, sorry. No, yeah, but but that, that, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, Pete's doing some really good things on um, recycling materials that would be used there on the seastead as well. Colin, uh, where can people learn about your work? C.com. It's C O L I N G Wiz. Um. But yeah, you can go online there. Uh, we've got a YouTube as well. Uh, I, I haven't really been putting a whole lot of stuff up recently because I've been just keeping my head down, doing lots of R&D and moving techniques and technologies forward. So I didn't. there's some things I didn't really want to talk about this new stuff. Um, but now that we've got things functioning, we've got good solid data, we're getting back into a marketing phase. Uh, and if people want systems, you know, they're, they're, I wouldn't call them cheap, but they'll last for 100 years. That's a nice thing about using plastics, HDPE. 
you know, even under full sun, you've got decades and decades and decades of use for, for using these materials, uh, which is another reason I like it, you know, pay for it once, essentially. Yeah, uh, it's been great talking to you, Colin, and, um, and you always share a lot of really fascinating information. So I hope people will come back and listen to the recording because I, I know all of us, uh, all of us could, could go back and listen and learn something new again. So thank you again for being with us. And uh, for, I hope people will join our next Coffee Talk event on April 13th. And maybe we can talk about manganese farming at, at that event, Colin, if you're available. Again, thanks, thanks for joining us. And I hope to see you at the next event. Thank you, everybody. The Seasteading Today podcast is produced and hosted by Carly Jackson. Send feedback and questions to podcast at seasteading.org. To support our podcast and the Seasteading mission, go to seasteading.org slash donate. If you'd like to learn more, read Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. (music) 